from my experience in India was that they, they work really hard. Philippines, quite similar to India in that context, but again, it's all very processy driven. And then Japan was very, very different. Recruitment there for me was like a... I think what's going to be fascinating to see over the next couple of years is, especially with the rise of AI, how much automated decision-making do companies put in their hiring process? There's a perception about black people that I experience in Asia, which is linked to TV shows, right? Which is anger, violence, all this kind of stuff. So if I wasn't my smiley self and my usual high pitch voice and I just wanted to get stuff done, at that point when I found that out, I couldn't believe it. And I, I had to make a decision. Do I take offense to this or do I adjust to suit the culture, the culture that I was working in? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Power of People Building podcast. My name is Mark. I am the co-founder and CEO at HackerJob and I am your host for today. And today we have a very exciting episode. Michael Entia, the talent acquisition leader at Simply Business, is going to be joining me to talk through his long and very global career that he has had. Michael has been working in the talent industry for 15 years and has a proven track record of success in multiple geos, regions, industries, company sizes, uh, which we'll be talking through today. Michael's ability to adapt to the ever-evolving landscape of talent acquisition, combined with his global perspective, has also seen him take on a role in becoming an ambassador for Be Radical and a community manager for the talent community. And a quick plug for the talent community, if you haven't gone and checked that out, it is a fantastic community of all types of talent professionals, which I love the approach the team are taking over there. So definitely go and have a look. But Michael, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Very flattered to be here and great intro, by the way. I'll bring that myself. <laughs> so Michael, I always like to start with just understanding your journey into recruitment. Recruitment is famously an industry that people fall into more often than not. So what was the starting journey for you? I don't think mine is any different to everyone else's, but I basically got into recruitment by accident. Um, I went to, I, we used to have Sunday catch-ups watching the football in a pub and having lunch and all of us were always broke. But the one person I always had money, I said to him one day, what do you do? And he said, I'll do recruitment. I said, what is that? He goes, oh, well, you speak to companies that need people and then you find those people and then they pay your fee. And I thought, well, this is great. And then a month later, um, I joined uh, the hydrogen group as a as a recruiter and then the story began from there <laughs> i love that man and talk me through what were the skills that you had on day one were you quite a natural outgoing salesperson? um did you have to develop that and then what skills have you kind of picked up along the way um yeah i mean look i i've worked i'd worked in sales up until that point so for me it the it was quite transferable to go from i used to sell like bicycle memberships to then going to do the like recruitment so that that transferable skill and being an extrovert was definitely one of the skills that I took into the role um I guess in terms of some of the skills I picked up it was more just being more eloquent as an individual um I'm quite casual as a person like I I talk to everyone in the same manner um but then when you get into recruitment you're talking to people that don't know you you can feel that like why you've been so comfortable with me you know and that was that was an interesting journey because up until that point I felt like I could talk to anyone. Um so that was one of the key skills I picked up. Um it was also about being more adaptable to conversations with different people because again, up until that point I'd more socialized with my own known network. Um, where again you can be a bit more relaxed about how you approach it. So then it was trying to take that extroverted sales skill set 
and then shuffling up a bit more to be a bit more corporate. Um, and that's probably one of the main skills I, I, I learned in recruitment because yeah, it was a, it was a bumpy start from the beginning because it was literally like, Hey, have you got any jobs? I've got a candidate. Great. Here's the candidate. You're going to pay me a fee. And then you start realizing that it's not as simple as that. I think you absolutely hit the nerd on the head there. When I explained to my friends who have absolutely no idea about the talent acquisition industry, they're like, wait, this is so simple, right? You get paid these ridiculous fees for just finding somebody. And it's like the amount of process that goes into ensuring the company hires the right person. And obviously in the agency world, the candidate needs to stay for a set period of time with rebates, et cetera. It's uh, a far more complex process than I think maybe what's uh, what's led to belief. And one of the key parts of that process is assessments. You know, we've obviously spent time in the technical assessment space. Um, there are psychometric assessments and psych- psychometric tests that people use, our personality tests that people use in the in the recruitment process. What's been your experience of kind of psychometric testing and, and different styles of assessment throughout your career? Um, so from a personal experience, um, I actually got rejected for a couple of jobs because they used a psychometric assessment to make a decision. Um, which I've never agreed with because I'm a big believer that they're there to help you get the best out of the individual rather than a, a hiring decision. Um, as as a user of psychometric assessments, um, I found them to be quite effective um, because I, I think it just it tells you as something that you don't always pick up from a conversation. Um, and you know, again, it's with individuals who are specifically trained to understand your behaviors, the way you're talking, your mannerisms, whether you're being true to yourself or not. So I, I find, I, I think they're a very positive tool if, if used in the right way. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that it's really interesting how much more data we can now have on an individual through the recruitment process by using different psychometric assessments, different interview styles, et cetera. I think what's going to be fascinating to see over the next couple of years is, especially with the rise of AI, how much automated decision-making do companies put in their hiring process? Because there's already been some pretty horrific stories of you know ai taking automated decisions that effectively are just reinforcing long-standing bias against different groups of individuals um, and it's the same with psychometric assessments i'm absolutely with you you know if if you're just automatically rejecting candidates based on you know a psychometric score that individual might have so much more to offer it's just one data point it shouldn't be the the sole hiring decision being taken on these assessments and talk me through the way the TA industry has evolved since you joined Hydrogen Hydrogen Group. So, you know, I've been in this space now for eight or nine years um, and it's been amazing to see TA become a true profession, in my opinion, and, and people, you know, take this a lot more seriously. Um, but how have you seen that evolution in your career and what do you think the drivers of the changes have been? Um, so interesting enough, when I first got into recruitment in 2007, to go in-house was seen as a, was seen as a failure as in that you couldn't cut it in the, in, the, in the hard grind of finding sales. And if I'm being completely honest, that's what actually stopped me going in-house to 2013. And where I see it has evolved is that, as you, as you just alluded to, it's become a profession. Like there's real value in TA. And I said this as recently as last week. Where organizations don't value TA, you can see, in my opinion, the, the link to essentially performance and happiness in the workplace because you've got someone doing a job who may not be happy doing it, right? Or someone that doesn't feel valued in the job or a glorified administrator, all the different terms that I used to hear back in the day when I was looking to go in-house. Whereas I feel like now you've got individuals who are being given the credibility they deserve to be able to sit in, in conversations and 
talking about how that talent is going to help shape the organization. And I think that that involvement in, in sorry, evolving aspect of it is actually very, very important because back in my day, how conversations used to go where I'd go to the manager. I was one of the recruiters that basically did all the stuff that I'm trying to get recruiters to stop doing now, right? So I never engaged with HR. I went straight to line. I built my relationships with line and I saw the talent acquisition function as the execution piece. Um, and over time, <clears throat> even in my roles as well, what I've seen is that you go to the hiring manager and they say, can you guys speak to my talent acquisition partner or my talent, whoever the person is, that whatever the reference is. And I see that as such a positive sign because that tells me that the organization now truly values the function and the individual as trusting enough for them to be able to make the decision as to who they work with or how they attract talent. So for me, that aspect of evolving for the function has been great because talent acquisition has been around even before I even knew about it, right? It's always been there. And if you look at some of the people that have been in talent acquisition since before I got into it, and I look at them and I look at the jobs they're in, I look at how senior they are and the fact that they've got direct access to senior people in the organization where they're making commercial strategic decisions, that that I don't think that used to happen before. Like I, I generally think time acquisition recruitment was just about here's what I want, go and find it, and then your job is done, I'll take over from there. Whereas now TA is so much more involved in everything, you know, candidate experience, onboarding experience, one year, six you know, two years hiring experience, like all of that kind of stuff sits within TA, which to me says that the business must trust you for you to do that because otherwise they wouldn't, right? They'll just let you they'll just keep telling you go and find people and then leave me to it. So it's evolving. It's get it is evolving. It's maturing. It's going. It's going in the right way for me, which is why my interest in TA has always remained. But do I think there's more? Absolutely. Um, we we can definitely do more. Um, but that's going to come down to organisations trusting the individuals they put into the roles, and that that's probably the next step on the journey. Yeah, I entirely agree. The podcast is called The Power of People Building. And one of my central thesis is that all a company is at the end of the day is the output of the people that work there. And so if we think that that is the way a company should be built and designed, then TA is the most strategic function of any function inside an organization. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's the TA function that's going to enable us to acquire the talent that we need to build the company that we need to kind of continue moving the world forward. So I absolutely agree. I think the best TA leaders actually their real strength is getting that strategic buy-in from the organization, getting that really great stakeholder management and being able to really influence that workforce strategy and workforce planning um, because that's where the, the value can be and not just, hey, back office function, go and fill this role or go and manage these agencies for us, which you know potentially is where it was in the past. Talk to me about where you think we can still improve as an industry. You know, What are some of the areas that you're looking at you're like, you know, actually, you know, we've come a long way, but we still should be aiming to improve in, in specific different areas. Do you know, I, I can't speak for the industry because I can only talk from my experience, but the things that I see now that stress the head out of me are the, the on one hand, everyone talks about candidate experience, but then on the, in the reality of it, it doesn't exist. And what I mean is, I don't think we're measured on that aspect of recruitment, right? I mean, you might measure it internally, but externally, I think there needs to be something set up because I've always believed in engaging individuals, whether they're suitable or not, even if you just to tell them you're not suitable, right? Because especially in the current climate where jobs are near and far between, there's people that have been out of work for God knows how long, like literally struggling to survive. 
and to sit there and invest the time in a company to apply for a job and to never hear back or to be called about a job and then never hear back. I just think it's terrible behavior and it just stains the whole industry. Now, I think that's a very good starting point. And I'm not saying it's going to be perfect. There, you know, at the end of the day, we can only do as much as we can do um, as a function. And I don't think it's always going to be about stakeholder relationships. Sometimes organization priorities change and it does leave a negative feeling if you're someone impacted by that change in a process. But I do feel like it's a softer blow when you've got a TA function who are really engaged with that process and they're really honest. And I don't think we should be ever be ashamed of saying, look, we don't know what's going on and we're truly apologetic for it, but here's the update. Now, in that same breath, I think it's also about setting expectations on how we engage with the candidates as well, right? In, in anyone in the market, like, I'm a big believer that if someone just applies, yes, they should receive an automation or a rejection, like automated rejection. But the moment they engage in a process in terms of interview onwards, you have to give them that courtesy of giving them something that they can use to better themselves. And I think that's still a big part of the TA world that needs improving because I see online loads of people talking about how important this is. And I also see the same people behaving in a way that contradicts what they're saying. And I don't really feel comfortable calling it out because again, as you know, in the recruitment world, it's a very small world. We all, we all need each other at some point. Um, and we don't know what's going on with an individual for them to behave in that way. But if we have an external standard that we all have to operate to, I, I would be surprised if um, people weren't getting called out because I don't think it's that difficult to be to be um, courteous to individuals. I, don't, I really believe that. I don't care how big the organization is, how many volumes you are, you can set up automation to make sure people are engaged. It's not that difficult. Yeah, I entirely agree. And I think sometimes as TA leaders, as people in the industry, we only really feel this pain when we actually go for a job search process ourselves and start applying for jobs and not hearing back. I'm thinking, wait, hang on, this is how it feels when somebody goes to me after an interview or whatever it might be. And you're right to call out that look, business priorities do change. And especially over the last 18 months, right, we have seen companies really seesawing around on hiring plans on roles being open and then cancelled very, very quickly. But I think if you can communicate in a transparent and clear and frequent way to candidates, people understand, you know, actually very rarely do people get upset when they hear, you know, sorry, the role's been placed on hold for this reason, or do you know what, actually we're unsuccessful for this reason. Um, but I think there is a lot of frustration around, you know, people being ghosted effectively in a recruitment process. And it's one of the things we've really focused on at Hacker Job is how do we design a product that basically means a candidate is in more control of the job search and should never be ghosted and i think it's one of the reasons why our users love the product so much is because the experience is is so much better so i'm absolutely with you and it is a tight-knit community and a lot of people do pontificate online and sometimes it doesn't always manifest into you know what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis as well um, but like you're right you know we don't know what's going on a lot of ta teams are under a lot of pressure right now you know a lot of ta teams are much smaller than they were this time 12 months ago or 24 months ago so um yeah I, i'm absolutely with you uh, on that one um switching gears slightly because i'm fascinated to hear this story at one point in your career you decided to move to singapore because of a certain man called piers morgan how on earth did that come about and please tell our listeners the story right okay so before i start i just need to be very clear here i i personally i don't agree with the guy I don't like some of the views he shares. I think there's a lot of negative undertones of some of the stuff he puts out there. But this was when I, as I became older and more aware of what's going on in the world. But back in 2008, 
um, I stumbled across a TV show that Piers Morgan did, which was on Singapore, Vegas, and Dubai. And on the Dubai, on the Singapore one, sorry, he basically said, and honestly, I remember it to this day, he said, the next richest person is going to come um, in the world is going to come from Singapore. And I don't know how I came to this conclusion, but I just sat there and I went, oh, that's a chance for me to go and make some money. So literally after that meeting happened, I was meant to be on a plane to uh, San Fran. I pulled out of that. I was meant to be on a plane to Dubai, pulled out of that. Then I got offered a job in Singapore and no word of a lie, I packed my bags and like less than three weeks later, I was in Singapore. And whether, well, it didn't come true because I'm still working now, but, but you know, that, that literally is what drove me to move to Asia, just purely because of that one line I heard in that TV show. Um, and I look, I don't regret it. I had great experiences, but yeah, that my basis for going there was no, there was no rational behind it apart from just that one line TV show, a 30 minute TV show that I'd spent time watching. Not the only thing that Piers Morgan has said on a TV show that has turned out not to be true. Uh, so uh, yeah, but that's, uh, that's an amazing, amazing, uh, an amazing story. And then so talk us through your experience in Asia, because it wasn't just Singapore. Uh, you worked in Japan, India, the Philippines. What were the big differences in the recruitment culture, the hiring process? And how did that kind of global view change your approach to being a TA leader today? So I'll answer that backwards. So how, how it changed my, my view is I, I certainly think it just opened my eyes to how things are done differently. Um, and look, not, not to cast aspersions on anyone that has only ever remained in the UK, but and the UK is quite diverse, in my opinion, especially if you go to like places like London, Manchester and so forth. And you do get different experiences, but I think culturally is not always very diverse. Um, whereas, you know, if I was to give an example of India, like my experience in India was that they, they work really hard, but they're very process driven. Um, whereas like myself in Singapore, it was almost like, I, I did things how I felt, like I followed how I felt to get things done. Obviously there were processes that you had to follow, but it was all personal influence. So if there were 10 steps for process, I could have done it in two if, if, if it was right for me. Um, Philippines, quite similar to India in that context, um, very hard workers, but again, it's all very processy driven. Um, and then Japan was very, very different. So recruitment there for me was like a, a new age thing as in like people recruited there's recruitment there's big businesses out there but it felt very like hierarchical right so the recruit I, I felt that recruiters weren't always empowered to kind of influence so imagine when i turned up with my red energy extroverted behaviors and i was like talking it, it got it don't get me wrong it worked and it didn't work. In some pockets, people were really appreciative appreciative of me taking control of the process and getting things done. But in other corners, you can always feel that nervousness like, well, this is new, like what you're doing. And one really random example, which was in Japan, um, I actually introduced an agile process on how we onboard new starters. And I cut off about, was it four hours in a working day, right? So I people used to work from nine or eight o'clock, literally to eight o'clock sometimes. And I literally was working from eight to like half or five. And honestly, the amount of looks I got when I left the office at five o'clock, because I would spend half an hour just doing my admin, it was so bizarre. And I just remember going, but I've just saved all these hours in a day. The candidates were very happy because they didn't have to come to the office three times to sign a contract and hand on boarding documents in. But then someone internally was very unhappy because they're like, this is not culturally aligned. And I just remember sitting in the meeting going, something doesn't feel right here. 
And then I had a conversation with my boss and we were talking about the cultural differences. And I was like, wow, okay, it, it, it's interesting. So I think it's more cultural behaviors that I saw as a difference to the different behaviors across each country. Um, but ultimately, I saw the passion there for everyone I came across for recruiting. Like everyone still had the same level of passion, whether they were just sourcing, administering, advising, what leading, whatever it was, the same passion was there. It was just how they executed was very different country to country. Yeah, that experience, I feel like, is a great life experience full stop, you know, whether it be recruitment specific or just experiencing those different cult cultures, ways of working, uh, different approaches to recruitment, I'm sure has made you uh, yeah, far more diverse and eclectic leader today in this industry. It's a pretty, pretty unique journey, man. It's a pretty unique experience. And, you know, you touched on the UK being, you know, a pretty diverse place, certainly in, in kind of some of the major cities. Diversity is obviously, you know, one of the biggest topics in um, TA, you know, it has been basically since we've been doing this. How, what's your view? You know, how can we tactically practically strategically you know genuinely move the needle on diversity within the roles that you recruit for within recruitment itself etc i honestly i'm going to say what everyone said and i'm not gonna i'm not i'm not i'm not a i'm not new to this but i genuinely feel that where where diversity is lacking we need to shift our mindset to growing our own talent um, irrespective of whatever data is out there. Like, for example, I saw, I, I had a conversation a few months ago with um, someone senior in the tech world and we're talking about diversity and they made a comment to say, well, the average tenure is three years. So basically, if you bring people in, you just train them to go elsewhere. And whilst that might be true and might be selfish from an organization's thinking perspective, if everyone did that, guess what would happen over time? you would see that diversity growing within organizations because people move around, right? And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Now, it's easy for me to say because I don't run the organization. It's not my budget, right? But I think if you want to fix the problem, you can't keep going for like for like all the time. And a really random example, when I when I worked in banking, we, um, we were looking to improve our female representation on the trading floor. And we basically went out and we're like any females experience will will want we wanted to come on board and one woman that we approached from another big bank she'd been given a 50 percent pay rise before she'd even secured a job in her skill set because they knew that she was top talent and you know then it goes back to then you have the internal challenges of reward like is it is it fair if like someone has more than someone because of the gender and equally if you go for someone that's diverse do they deserve to be paid more than the person that isn't diverse? You know, everyone should be paid equally. But then the problem is if you're already on equal standing in different companies to so bring it to one company, someone's going to have to go up. So I just think we need to get comfortable with growing our own talent. And, you know, I say this internally all the time, ring fencing roles and committing that this is going to go through some form of career journey to bring them up to the standard you want for that level. And you you create programs for it. So similar to like grad early career stuff, but slightly different in the sense that the goal is that this person coming in is going to be here in this amount of time. And this is how we need to get them there. And then you scale it. And it's not to say, you know, you hire every single person a junior because I appreciate organizations need that experience. But if you're consistently banging your head in the same talent pool and you're struggling to find that diverse talent, doing the same thing over and over isn't going to change it. So I'm a big believer in growing your own talent. Like, 
all areas, not just in tech, everywhere, every organization, every every diversity shortfall. If it's not available, the talent's not available, then guess what? Grow your own. And in time, you might find that those individuals who you bring on and give them the opportunity are so committed to you because you've given them that chance that they may not leave. Like you can't predict everything. I don't believe we can predict everything. Otherwise, I for one would have been super rich by now and not working. 100%. I think it's such a powerful message. And one of the things I love running a startup is you get to do this practically. You know, I've seen people's career evolve so much, completely change roles, completely change functions. And something that we often debate internally is, we literally are having this conversation at the moment about hiring a product marketing manager. And if we go to market to hire them, it's going to take three months to run that process, then to see out their notice, then to join. And then another three months of onboarding and ramping and giving them context. That's six months, you know. Is there somebody internally that actually deeply understands the business, is very passionate, and we can give them some great training and development over a six-month period to get them there instead? So, you know, I absolutely am with you. And I think organizations need to get more comfortable that people don't have a career for life anymore. People do move around. It is what it is. And actually, that shouldn't stop us investing in talent. Actually, that should make us invest in talent even more. Because like I said, if we all take that approach, the whole community, the whole ecosystem is is going to benefit from it. But I want to dive into your personal experience because I know that in some of the roles that you did in Asia, you were the, literally the only black man in the company. How did that shape your experience? How did that feel? And what impact has that had on you today? So... Funny enough, right, um, and with all the stuff that went on in the UK after the Euros and stuff in 2020, like it really opened my eyes to the real challenges that people of colour deal with in the world. And when I relayed that back to my time in Asia, when I first went there, I didn't, I didn't see myself as a black man in a country where there was no one else there. Like we were very, very, we were less than a minority. Right? We were just, we were just like a dot in a population map, right? But when I was in the workplace, and this is when I actually noticed it, um, and it, it actually transpired for a really random event. So obviously in TA, you, you go from your tractor talent, you go through the onboarding, and it's not just TA that does that, right? It, it, you, you're part of the process. You collaborate with other teams. So, so I see us as internal brokers, right? And for me, I like to do things quickly, and I don't like hanging around with stuff. So what would happen was we had someone come in, we needed some paperwork done, or I needed approval for reward, and I would go bowling down the office to the other side, and I'd be like, hey, can I have a chat? And then I noticed that every time I got down to the other end of the stuff, everyone picked up their phones, and I was like, I've just sat there from my desk watching you, and I, you weren't on the phones. So how come everyone's on their phones now? So I went back and spoke to my boss, and she went, I need to tell you something. And I was like, what? She goes, you're a six-foot black guy on the floor of 100 people where you're the only black guy, and... I was a lot bigger than as well in terms of size, right? So, and I mean, I mean, the average height of Singapore is five and a half, right? 5.5, five, five foot five inches, and I'm six foot one. So she was like, they're not used to firstly working at the pace you work at. Secondly, there's a perception about black people that I experienced in Asia, which is linked to TV shows, right? Which is anger, violence, all this kind of stuff. So if I wasn't my smiley self and my usual high pitch voice, now I just wanted to get stuff done supposedly intimidated my colleagues. And at that point, when I found that out, I couldn't believe it. And I, I had to make a decision. Do I take offense to this? Or do I adjust to suit the culture, the culture that I was working in? And I chose to go for the latter because it wouldn't have served me any purpose getting angry and feeding into that narrative. So then all that changed my style was that 
instead of bottling the Antioch and the whole to, um, the corridor to Asha stuff, I'd email or stick some time in the calendar and I then adjusted my SLAs to make sure that I factored in that someone might need a few hours to respond to my query rather than me getting the same on the spot. But it was interesting. I mean, this is, I took it as a learning experience, right? As to understand how different people work rather than be offended that someone was scared of me just purely because of my skin color or because of my height. Um, so that, that was my, that was my main, my main thing. I think if I look, think about India, there was a lot of stairs. Um, I, I went on a work campus and again, I was the only, I was literally the only black guy on the whole campus, um, of God knows how many hundreds of thousands of people there. And I'd, I'd rock, I'd walk into campus and literally I see people staring at me. But again, I was just like, I'm pretty sure if the shoe was on the other foot and it was a campus full of all black people and then an Asian person or white person turned up, people would naturally look out of curiosity, right? It doesn't always mean it's manly. So I think the undertone of what I'm saying is I firstly had to understand that I was a figure in a different cultural environment that I'm, well, they're not used to seeing. And the only way to overcome it was to just either to adapt and just kind of go against the narrative, right? So if someone thinks that all black people are angry and violent and all this kind of stuff, then being angry because they're looking at me is really going to feel it. So I chose not to. But then equally, if someone displayed malicious intent towards me, then I'd make a point of letting them see that side. But I, I very rarely got that. It was just a shock to the system when it happened. And yeah, it was it was interesting. But, it, you know, I'm still, I'm still fond of the experience. So it couldn't have been that bad. I think it's a very, very powerful message and example of why DNI really does matter. You know, because you touched on it, right? People have their lived experience, you know, and that lived experience is by people that they interact with on a day-to-day basis. It's by the culture and the media and their region and their country and their city or whatever it is. And actually by you being there, you were able to fundamentally challenge those assumptions or stereotypes that the, you know, pop culture in that region had said. And hopefully that lived experience of those individuals then changes their perspectives and changes their opinions. And I think it's why DNI is so important as a topic, why we should all strive to build more diverse teams. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think a really, really powerful, powerful lived experience. Um, and thank you so much for, for sharing it with, with our audience. Um, we're coming towards the end. I know you're a busy man and, uh, and, uh, I'm sure you've got other bits and pieces to be getting on with, uh, today. Um, I want to touch on kind of sourcing tools and technology uh, before we go into our, our last question that we ask every guest. And I know you've been a big cheerleader of HackerJob from the sidelines for for a while now, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And most recently, you know, I've become a HackerJob customer. What's your current take on the state of sourcing tools out there, LinkedIn, HackerJob, other products? And yeah, how are you how are you thinking about that as you put together kind of a TA strategy? To, to be to be honest with you, part of the reason why we became a customer was because I, I like the way you built the product, right? And at the top of the call, we're talking about a candidate experience and, you know, the team that, you know, James and Taylor, when we first spoke to them over a year ago and the way they managed the demo experience in terms of their proactive staying on top of not just the candidate, but also the, the company using your platform. That, that, that is something that I think you've nailed really well in the market right now. Obviously, I'm not going to name the other products out there that we've used, but the challenge that we had with them was that it was almost self-service, right? So, hey, Mark, I've seen your profile. Let's have a chat. And then you might look at a message. You might not. But then there's no one kind of saying, hey, are you you registered? Like, are you keen to join? Whereas 
LinkedIn is quite similar. It's just got so big that literally, I feel like you shoot messages and you're just sending to a black hole and hoping that something something lands at the other end. And that unknown for me devalues the product. Um, now LinkedIn is not going to get unseated overnight because they're just they're a monster of a machine. But the fact that you've managed to grow the business to where you have by having just the small fundamentals, right? Maintaining engagement, maintaining like um, the experience aspect of it. So making sure that actually it's not just about the company buying your product. It's about also about the candidates that are trying to find work. And I think that them two things alone is what's going to keep driving the growth hacker job. So th does that mean I'm going to I'm going to not use anyone else? No, but what it does mean is that when I'm now looking at other providers, not just for tech, but for other areas, I'm looking at, do they fit that, that structure, right? Are you just going to show me a product and leave me to it with no measurements of how we're getting success from it? Or are you actually going to keep me honest and keep me using it because it just benefits everyone? So... I think yeah, that that's the that's the biggest biggest shortfall I've seen with some of the other platforms out there. Just there's just no follow-on engagement, and you know you go into your monthly checking, and they're like, "Oh, you've done this really well, but you haven't done this well enough." And my response is, "So, who's gonna is gonna be pushing us to do it well? Because if if the buck stops the, the payment, then you're no better than any of the other platforms out there." So I think that's a real differentiator. That customer success model you've got. Is, is a solid, solid um, interjection. I think I told James and Taylor that from the beginning, which is why they stayed on me for over a year. <laughs> I eventually crumbled. I love it. I love it. Great persistence from the team. And, you know, it's been one of the theses as we built the company is not to try and automate everything and actually to have the best of technology and people. You know, there is some stuff that technology can do. I think matching up talent to jobs is amazing that tech can do that. It's a much slicker experience for both the internal recruiters and the candidates by by building really slick web apps. But there is still value in having a really strong customer success team for our, our companies and a really strong talent success team for our users. Because again, I think we can often forget this in the TA world is that getting a new job is a big deal. You know, it's a stressful experience and actually being able to support the candidate through that journey is really powerful. And then it is not easy to hire technical people. So being able to offer those strategic insights, you know, best practice, what other companies are doing, et cetera, is, um, is really valuable. So I'm glad that you're having a good experience and you've got to keep challenging us to make sure that we keep innovating and evolving as a, as a product and as a business and, uh, and make sure we keep solving your problems. But we will end this podcast with the one question I like to ask every guest, which is what is the best piece of advice you've received in your career? Do you know, I've tried to think about this and I don't know if there's just one. I think there's been loads. I'm trying to think of something that's really stuck out. Do you know, I, actually, do you know, I'll be honest with you, it's very generic, but the one, the one that one of my best managers ever said to me, right, was whenever you get into that moment where you feel like giving up, right, stop, take a minute and call me, right? And I never understood that point when she said it to me. I was like, what are you talking about? And then literally five days later, I had that moment. And the difference between me going, I'd done like this internal stuff because I went from doing sales, sales to just doing like admin, right? I went from doing that. And I just remember sitting there going, why did I, why did I just give up a agency job for this? And then I spoke to my boss and then she just invested time in understanding why I felt the way I did. And ever since then, that learning, every time I get into that moment where I feel like I'm about to have a reaction, I stop, I reflect, and I think, why do I feel like this? 
and look, it's something that I've, I've applied to my personal and professional life, and it's a great it's a great bit of advice. It's not necessarily related to recruitment. It's just that stop, think, reflect, and then target the problem. So I'll say that I think that's that's the one that I'm, I'm most happy about. Love it. A very very tactical ending to this podcast, so everybody can go away and take that piece of advice and action. I think it's uh, a brilliant way to end. So, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing a ton of interesting stories. I'm sure the listeners are going to get yeah a ton of value from this. So, just a big big thank you from me for for giving up your time. No, thank you for inviting me. Like I said, I feel special. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna wait for it to go live so I can blast it off my socials. Like podcast is my thing now. <laughs> Depending on the feedback, of course. <laughs> We'll make you an influencer in no time at all, Michael. Don't you worry about that. 